0: So uh, welcome everyone as you're uh, joining in. Um, where do we start? Well, I'll tell you what I'm playing in, in a moment. But as always, I hope you can hear me over the music. If you want to say hello to the other participants, please do. Uh, it's a good tester so that you know how to operate in Zoom. If you'd like you to put stuff into the chat, So uh, the song that we're playing, is Paradise. I'm turning it down a bit now. Ivan Vangelis. It's a bit sad, I'm a bit sad because it's the last of the second series that we've been doing with IOKO here, so um, it's a tear in my eye for that one. But then there's the build-up, the conquest of Paradise. It's all about why digital transformation spread starting the title, but we're also going to learn about how to make this video, and that is a utopia. So hopefully there's an uplift for everyone, and I'm super excited that we've got Tony on the call to be introducing in a bit. But for now, let me hand over to the Governor, uh, CEO of digital History, I okay.
1: Dion, over to you, I'll let you do the intro. Hello, everyone. Uh, as Colin mentioned, my name is Dion Govender. I'm a cluster director at IOKO, as well as the head and CEO of uh, Digital Industries. Um, a very exciting business. Last week, or in week four, um, Colin had spoken to Andrew Baker, who was the CTO of EPSA. Uh, the topic then was transforming financial services. And of course we heard of Andrew's very unconventional ways of doing things, very um, important these days. And also explored the the practical steps incumbent leaders take um, if they want to thrive in a world where change is ever constant. Uh, That was definitely worth the watch. Uh, This week we speak to Tony Saldana who's the president of Transformant, Uh, is also the former vice president of the Global Business Services and IT at Procter & Gamble and he will speak to us today on why digital transformations fail. So we all know that digital transformation matters uh, to us all, Uh, and especially so in these unprecedented and uncertain times, it matters even more uh, as companies and uh, sometimes even whole industries embark on on a journey that itself is fast-paced and ever-changing. So there are a lot of pivotal pivotal technologies, Uh, Artificial intelligence, virtual augmented extended reality, uh, the cloud, industrial IoT, et cetera. I'm not gonna name all of them, but all of them are helping transform traditional industries. But what is very important to note, and particularly in our part of the world, it's not really about the technology, but the talent. It's not about the systems, but the skills. Uh, So in short, digital transformation is not possible without organizational, and of course, without leadership transformation. So I think we can expect a fast-paced conversation exploring what we all have to do to start uh, to start doing today to drive suc- uh, successful digital transformations and I want to take you uh, to thank you for taking the time out a little hour out of your very busy week um, making the time to watch uh, what promises to be a very insightful episode in our IOCO inspire series. Uh, you're welcome to post your comments uh, or your questions in the chat. Uh, for our speaker or even for the panel afterwards um, and I wish you a uh, uh, really pleasant uh, watch and listen it's going to be very invigorating and I now would like to hand over to Colin Illis of Innovation Catalyst who will facilitate the conversation. Thanks, Colin.
0: Awesome thank you very much uh, okay he's set the bar quite high we've got to go and make this exciting uh, make sure it's useful for people and all that sort of stuff I'm sure we're going to go and do it let's start uh, at the beginning Tony. What's your background? I'm super excited that we've got you on the call. I think um, this is a catch of note for us, but uh, why don't you just give us a bit about your background? Maybe it'll become clear to those listening why I feel that way.
2: Oh, thank you, Colin. Uh, A real pleasure to be here. Um, You know, what would have been even better than, you know, doing this virtually would have been if I was um, with you there in Jorburg, one of uh, my favourite cities and one of my favourite countries to be in. But, hey, we'll make do So my background is uh, 35 years. Oh God, has it been that long? In the IT and global business services industry, I was uh, 27 years with uh, Procter and Gamble. I had the uh, privilege of, um, you know, quite literally growing up with the IT and and global business services shared services industry. Um, I helped set up the uh, first ever shared services center in the Philippines. Uh, in 1993, and uh, then uh, was program leader for a really big outsourcing deal about you know two thirds of PNG's IT and and uh, shared services globally, which was a ten year, eight billion dollar deal, which kind of triggered off the, the whole outsourcing industry. And then of course um, you know routine operations, uh, running day to day operations for PNG's IT and GBS in every region of the world. Um, and, um, then, uh, <clears throat> eventually, um, I had the privilege of essentially, um, dealing with a somewhat ironic issue, which is, you know, what do you do if, um, the industry considers your organization to be best in class in, in IT and, and, and GBS, but, you know, you've got tremendous opportunity. Uh, so what's the next generation? Um, and if there is none, how do you create it? So. I set up the equivalent of a Google X, Google X, the organization you guys know, uh, which does 10x moonshot disruptive thinking type of work uh, for the whole world, driverless cars, balloon internet, so on and so forth. So I created for the industry the equivalent of that, uh, along with, um, you know, five or six of the largest IT companies, um, IBM, uh, HP, Tata, you know, so on and so forth. And then, you know. Uh, some of the uh, biggest venture capitalists in the world, not so much for the money, but for the access to the startups. And we dealt with interesting issues, like, you know, why should processes like invoicing exist? Um, you know, why should, um, you know, uh, you have people instead of uh, robots doing actually spot buying and procurement. By the way, th- these were not early um, uh, upstream innovation ideas. Each of those was a $50 million project that was actually implemented. So. Uh, So that's that. And then about two years ago, I decided to uh, uh, try and do something different. Uh, So therefore, Transformant, which uh, I used to consult and work with maybe about 20 of the Fortune 100 companies, um, mostly doing strategy and uh, for for digital as well as shared services at the uh, board and the uh, CXO CEO level. So here we are, Colin, we've had occasion to speak in the past and and it's always a pleasure to chat with you. So I'm looking forward to this.
0: Thanks very much. Now, one of the things that you did when you left is you decided to write a book, um, which I find a rather scary proposition. Um, but it ended up being a very good book, Why Digital Transformations Fail. I've read it. I find it absolutely fascinating and on point. Um, and I'm not the only one because you've come in the uh, top charts. You're number one, I think, in the change management section for Amazon, which is just an incredible uh, what, what was it um, that led you to want to write this book?
2: Oh, other than sheer boredom? Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, now, <laughs> you know, I, I I always felt like um, I would like to write a book. I mean, you know, when, when I was in school, college magazines, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I actually do like writing. Um, and then, um, you know, when I actually started to think about doing that, I, I, I talked to uh, a, a few author friends uh, about actually writing a fiction book and they said hey hey hey, hey stay within your wheelhouse you know nothing about fiction um, you know why don't you write about IT and digital transformation so um, so that's been on the roadmap for a long time and and then you know when I created this next generation services again the, the, the moonshot for internal business operations disruption uh, transformation um, you know I ended up with a lot of material, but you know more than that, I ended up with a conviction that um, you know um, the world is is in the throes of the fourth industrial revolution, which is both an incredible disruption, but also the opportunity of a lifetime for most of us as professionals. Um, and um, I, I had the distinct privilege of having the resources to you know go out and talk to quite literally hundreds of companies and, and, and learn um, about, you know, both how to make things successful and failures. Um, and it just strikes me uh, as, as crazy that, you know, the main weapon that the world has uh, to survive the fourth industrial revolution is basically digital transformation. And that's a trillion dollar industry and 70% of those efforts fail, which is an incredible waste. But it's also, as I said, an incredible opportunity. So well, though, you know
0: put that. two let's and two
2: together that and, and that's what led to the book sorry yeah go ahead
0: let's dig into that now and, and say what is a digital transformation last week we had andy baker on um who i respect immensely he's the cto of absa and and as was said on the intro there has a very very different way of thinking than most ctos do one which i really do subscribe to but he said that there's a huge difference between you know um Digitizing and being digital. What do you mean by digital transformation? Because I've had this question from clients recently, and it's actually not that easy to explain. At least I don't think so.
2: No, it, it is not easy. And 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 you know, quite honestly, the issue is is simply language, right? Um, you know, because the term digital has been around uh, quite literally for many many decades. And the word had different meanings, you know, again, from digital watches in the seventies to what we're talking about now. So language is important. Um, So here's my take on, you know, what I mean by digital transformation. I like to put this in the context of the fourth industrial revolution, because I think that's the most important thing that's happening around us. Right. So, um, You know, you need companies that are successful or at least surviving in the third industrial revolution uh, to be able to continue to exist uh, in the fourth industrial revolution era. My way of defining that is all of the things that are acting against those companies' survival is what we call digital disruption. Therefore, digital transformation is basically the antidote. It has got to be the rewiring of people, processes, business models, products, and people. Uh, and I say people twice because you know, like Dion, I believe that this is a, a human challenge. And so, in my mind, <clears throat> you know, uh, digital transformation is not technology. It is not a project. It is basically, you know how do you do a netflix over and over again how do you disrupt yourself how do you continue to be successful in wall street's eyes in your organization's eyes in the world's eyes by disrupting yourself before somebody else disrupts you
0: okay let's um, dig into that so for ir is this more myth and fantasy um is this the kind of um, very clever marketing from peter diamandis and his colleagues at singularity university um, and a good friend of mine as well from Sally and Ishmael, who've really, you know, sort of nailed it. Or is this actually reality, and we're living it now?
2: Um, <clears throat> so, um, uh, I mean, it's reality. You know, uh, let's make no mistake about it. Um, and 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 again, you know, we don't have to kind of uh, believe the hype. Uh, I think we always should look at the data, right? Um, so. Um, that's one of the reasons why I define success and digital transformation in the way that, um, you know, the, the, the World Economic Forum, Wall Street, you know, everybody else would de- define successes in businesses, right? Um, and, and you can do the same in, in government technology and, you know, so on and so forth, right? But, you know, let's look at the data, right? Um, the reality is that um, the, the lifespan of a, you know, um, a, a Fortune 500 company is is dramatically shrinking. The reality is that industry after industry, you know, starting with retail, but, you know, all the way up to things that we always thought of as intensely human activities. When you have small claims courts being managed by AI robots in Latvia and China, instead of humans, um, when you've got, you know, um, things such as um, uh, lip reading uh, being done more accurately by computers than humans, um, you know that this is disruption, right? Um, and, and again, you know, the, the question you ask is a good one because anytime there is a disruptive technology, there's incredible hype. So the issue is not, you know, whether the disruption is, is, is real or not. The issue is how much is hype and how much is reality? And my answer to that is there's only one measure to it, the way the world measures everything, right? You know, if you're a company, it's Wall Street returns. If you are an individual, it's basically, you know, knowledge learning. If you're a government, it's basically, you know, services and the opinion of your economic results and your organization. And then based on that, I agree with the World Economic Forum, which basically says we are in the midst of an industrial revolution.
0: Okay, so let's um, let's assume that's correct, um, and I certainly subscribe to it. There's too much evidence. Maybe we're in the trough of disillusionment for a couple yeah. of technologies, like drones, for example, but they're coming on strong. But there's just too much evidence of the impact of AI. Too much happening with companies like you know um, OpenAI, for example, and what Microsoft are doing. There's just too much stuff, um, you know, that's happening. I think for organisations that want to go and do a digital transformation, it's critical they believe that this fourth industrial revolution is real, otherwise they're not going to see it as the threat and or the opportunity um, that it actually is. So let's assume that everyone in, on the call is now at that space, they're, they're singularityed up. What do they start to do next? How do you start to go and change your organization from something that's a bit more linear, a bit more people, a bit more manufacturing era to something which is a bit more googly? You mentioned, you know, the X company.
2: Yes. So um, the, the the um, uh, and, and, and that's a very nice lead-in um, uh, to why digital transformations fail, right? Um, so here's what I believe, you know, it is, as you say, an imperative for us. Um, you know, there is a, there is mass failure out there. And I strongly believe that, you know, The reason why there's failure, uh, which will then lead to, you know, what should you do first? Yeah. Is for two very simple reasons. One is because language, most people are not clear about what digital transformation means in their own context. And then secondly, once they understand what it means, then the execution methodology that's used to actually get it done is still incomplete and incorrect. Um, I'm going to just joke a little bit about it, um, because, you know, I equate this a little bit to Alice in Wonderland and the anecdote between Alice and the Cheshire cat, where Alice says, which way should I go? The cat says, well, it depends on where you want to get to. Alice says, don't really care. And then the cat says, fine, it doesn't matter which way you go. And but I'm only just joking, but that is quite literally the conversations that, you know, I have with many of these very, very large companies because you know boards and leaders have recognized that we're in the midst of um an industrial revolution they know they want to do digital transformation but they're stuck at the very question you asked which is what should i do first the first is you know define digital transformation correctly it is not a technology it is not a project it is basically if you're running a company then it is one of three things you're going to have to completely change your business model, you're going to have to go from, you know, regular products to smart products, you know, like cars to smart cars, so on and so forth. And the third is you're going to have to dramatically improve your internal business operations, because startups have a 2x advantage on cost and a 10x advantage on speed in the way they internally run their organizations. So you have to be clear that that is success, right? Setting up a, you know, innovation shop in Silicon Valley, that is not success you know, playing around with AI, that's not success. When Wall Street says your business model has dramatically changed, your productivity has doubled, you know, so on and so forth, that's success. So that's the first step. It's up to the leadership to say, that's what it is. Second, when you start to do that, you know, don't throw out the baby with the bath water. You have a good working operating model and stuff like that. Don't change everything, you know, be extremely disciplined the same way Google is using a formula called 70, 20, 10, 70% of resources on operations, 20% on continuous improvement, 10% on disrupting yourself. You don't have to use those ratios because they are from another industry. In my case, it was more like 80, 19.5.5. But the fact is you have to have a portfolio approach to disrupting yourself. You don't just throw money. You don't just throw technology. You act like a venture capitalist you know you invest in you know 10 big ideas each of them you know could be hundreds of millions of dollars nine of them may fail one of them is going to change the the complexion of your company and the work that you do so that's what i mean by a very disciplined execution approach as well as definition
0: so let's start at the beginning then we'll go on to the execution methodology perhaps in the second half how do you get started on that because what you've just described is quite scary and, and I think radically different to what most executive teams are used to doing. And the problem I think that they've got is they are paid to be incremental. Yes. They are paid not to take risks. They're paid to generate short-term returns. And therefore it's quite easy to end up in a constraint where even if you believe the world is changing exponentially, you're delivering incrementally based on your legacy and, and the returns and the margins that you've been generating for the last two or three years. You must have found that at Procter & Gamble, right? Because you had to go through a transformation. How did you go through that mind shift change? And how did you get your colleagues to start going through this different way of looking at things?
2: Um, So I I think um, uh, it it is situational in the sense that, um, you know, you're correct for most leaders, even if you if you believe in, in, in the importance of Wall Street and stuff like that, even Wall Street rewards short-term results, not long-term results, right? Um, so um, for most organizations, um, you basically have to go back to your beliefs as a leader to say, you know, do you basically want to be remembered? Is your legacy going to be, you know, he or she did fine for the few years that they were at the helm, but the, the company collapsed, and, and thanks to them, right? Um, so, um, so that's 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 what you have to really, really ask yourself. And and I believe at the core of most good leaders is the understanding and the conviction that no, of course, they want to win in the short term and in the long term. Right? Uh, now, that's different. Uh, as I said, it's situational because if you have an existential crisis, if you have a burning platform, then forget it. You know, you're not going to do, do 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 stuff like regularly invest in, in venture capitalist type ventures, right? Um, but that's thankfully not the case. So once you do that, then, and this is really why I love the fourth industrial revolution um, uh, framework, then you have to realize that the business strategies that you use in normal times fail during industrial revolution times. And, and we all know that. I mean, because no amount of continuous improvement of the horse carriage would lead you to the internal combustion engine, right? Uh, and that's this is really where academics and company leaders know because you know there've been people, uh, you know, at at, at Harvard and the Clay Christensen and others that have talked about this third leg of the strategy, which is disruptive innovation. Right. So then the question becomes, how do you do that in a disciplined manner? Most good companies already do have uh, that strategy of disruptive innovation, but they're blindly throwing stuff. Um, at disruptive innovation, they are to use the term that you know you you talked about earlier. They are doing digital. They are not being digital.
0: Right. Let's let's just just pause there because we're going to come on to that. I still want to know what the board can do, or the board themselves, to get that mind shift change. Because I'm not convinced. Maybe it's because of uh, geography that I'm in. Maybe that's totally unfair. But I'm just not convinced most leaders are able at this point to take this step you're quite rare at Procter & Gamble. And I'm just wondering what they can do to try to go and, and, and get that mind shift you know, going. For example, I believe that you were at Singularity and then you had a strong relationship with uh, people like Saleem, uh, which you were able to bring into the organization. A lot of people that do that go back and they, they end up getting thrown out of their organization because what they're saying yeah. is just complete madness. Yes, But the reality is that if you want the board and the exco to start putting together ideas How do you get them to stop thinking a big SAP implementation or a large Salesforce implementation is going digital as opposed to we've got to start running, which we're gonna go on to a minute, these 10 projects of significant size on a portfolio basis of which most will fail and we're willing to explain that to our shareholders and investors. how do you get them to do that movement? Yeah,
2: yeah. how how do you get them to come along? Um, And and, um, uh, that's that's a fantastic question, Colin. Um, so you know I'll, I'll share with you um, uh, what I did and and what I recommend uh, people to do to bring along their their boards and and, and their leadership, right. Um, first part of the strategy is you know shock therapy, right? Um, so, Singularity and Salim, Ismail, and others, I mean, you know, they do these sessions which are called um, awake sessions um, where you basically take people, leaders, out of their normal operating context and then you show them disruption happening, you know, even as they speak. Um, So one of the things I used to do, I still do now with other companies, uh, this was pre-COVID, is actually take them to Silicon Valley, have them talk and see other companies and and see how disruption is near right i'll give you an example um every company in the world let's take a boring example of um internal business operations travel expense management right Um, every company in the world um most companies in the world do travel expense reporting you know the hated task of actually creating an expense report you know sending it out you know stuff like that Um, Google, Adobe, most of the companies that are operating in a different era uh, from us, they don't do that. They use data. So if you want to travel from Joburg to New York, um, there is data in the system that says, Colin, your budget should be, I'm going to make this up, but, you know, let's say uh, $10,000. At that point in time, you're done. Um, As long as you use the corporate card, your, your travel and expense report is pretty much made for itself, right? Uh, and you're freed as an employee to then decide whether you're going to use the corporate travel agency or you know google flights or you know your friend's airplane or you know whatever it is. if you spend money use the card if you don't you use, you, you save some money then that money is share. now i use this as an example to to help bring the leadership along to say there is an alternative that exists um I was blown out of my mind five years ago, when I was trying to set up a meeting with a, um, uh, a, a the CEO of a, a small sized company, and we were going back and forth on email, playing email tag. And eventually the CEO said, fine, I'll just ask Amy, who I assumed was his admin. Uh, it's, it's in the book, you probably read the example, uh, to set this up. And Amy came out with a perfect email in context, stuff like that. It was only later I discovered that Amy was a robot. Here's the difference between a startup and large companies. Larger companies are risk averse, so they ask questions which are wrong, like, is AI ready for me? Smaller companies ask the question differently, is the use case of calendaring using email ready? And if that's the case, why am I not using that? So the first step to your question is, you have to make people aware and you have to shake them up to say, This stuff is not vaporware. It exists and it is being used. The second is you have to use real data to say, you know, the operating cost per revenue in these startups, which are, by the way, your real competition even on products, is half of ours, right? And even if we think we're best in class, this is a problem. Once you share that data, I mean, you know, you can only do so much. You can take, you know, the horse to the water, you can't make it drink. My belief is that, you know, my experience is that 80% of the times, then the next question comes out, which is, can you show me how to do that without wasting time and money? Because that's exactly what is happening. I'm throwing money away. I don't believe I can do this in my company. Is there a better way to do this? Which essentially then gets us to execution.
0: So let, let's go into that. Let's run. I mean, I certainly see really good examples. I mean, here locally, uh, Capitec, their leadership team, they regularly go in, and uh, visit and explore. I call it outside in thinking, doing everything you can at a senior level to get out of your organization, to go and explore and to, to be challenged and to, and to rethink. So. Over a period of three to six months, the board and the Exco have started to go and change their mindsets. They're either panicking or quite excited about it, but now what next? Where do they get um, started on this?
2: So I think where they need to get started is, um, again, in this you know, discipline framework of uh, creating a strategy. Um, now, by the way, you know, again, language is important. This is not a digital strategy. It's a new business strategy uh, enabling the organization to act in the fourth industrial revolution area, which happens to use digital technology, right? And that distinction is really, really important because, um, you know, when companies do things like they appoint a chief digital officer, or they, they, they say, we are gonna disrupt ourselves and they create a team, all that they're doing is basically um, uh, what I call innovation theater, right? Very, very cool projects, very good examples. However, their reward systems on the day-to-day basis is for continuity, right? Um, because you're not going to throw away, you know, the profitability and your organization and, you know, stuff like that. Good companies, you know, whether it's GE or PNG that have existed for hundreds of years, in p and case, more than 180 years is because that stability that comes in uh, that that actually allows these companies to weather major uh, earthquakes uh, in the economy. So don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I know we as innovation leaders sometimes love to talk about the immune system and, you know, how change management is hard and stuff like that. But we have to recognize that it exists for a reason. It is our job as change leaders to then come out with a clear strategy on how you are going to transform the company, not the technology, you know, not the platform, not SAP, how you're going to transform the company. So that's what I mean by it's a new business strategy, not a digital strategy. So in my case, it was very, very simple. It was basically using this framework of, you know, 70, 20, 10, or in my case, as I said, you know, 80 and 19 and a half and half, you know, whatever it is to say, okay, you know, In IT and global business services, we we may have, you know, 15,000 FTEs, uh, including ours and and, and our partners, Um, but, you know, why don't we just take very, very senior, you know, like director level, you know, about a dozen people, and then create this ecosystem, and we're going to be in the business of applied disruption. So, we're not going to essentially create products like X does, but what we're going to do is we take business problems, you know, why should you have 400 people doing disputes on receivables? Why can you not actually do that better? And then we're gonna reach out to startups and and find startups that are actually working on implementing those, except that they're not enterprise-hardened, they're not enterprise-ready. And our job will be to essentially change manage, to enterprise-harden those existing use cases and then to drive change, reward systems, training, process change back in the company, right? So so that's the key. I think a very different approach to the way most companies do upstream innovation in their companies.
0: Let's just just understand a couple of things there. When you say strategy, strategy always is a word that makes me feel like, oh, in three months we'll have done this, and at six months we'll have delivered that, and we'll have a milestone at, at 12 months. And it's also obvious uh, what's happening over the next three years. Um, and within that strategy, we're gonna have to make sure we employ about six you know, um, uh, system architects, because it's really obvious how to go and structure our, our tech stack. Um, and then we're just gonna go and execute after that three to six months of analysis um, and, and just paint by numbers, make sure that the people are executing on, on time. Is that what you're suggesting?
2: No, 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 no. Uh, and, and that's a, that's a good clarification. So when I talk about strategy, I'm really talking about, uh, uh, and again, I'm I'm using industry rather than government uh, as an example here. I'm talking about, you know, uh, those three changes that I talked about earlier. Change the company business model. So if you happen to be in the manufacturing and and selling to physical stores, a new business model, as you know, could be, you know, you do that, of course, but then you also do omni-channel and you do online. Uh, so that's completely changing your business model. The second of the three is you change your product. So if you happen to be in the toothbrush uh, business, like Procter & Gamble is with uh, Oral-B, um, you go smart toothbrushes. If you're in the car business, smart cars. You know, so on and so forth. Right. And then the third is internal business operations. So if you do, you know, travel expense reports, the old traditional way of everybody res- writes their expense report, we send it offshore. You know, if somebody does um, three-way expense receipt matching, you know, they use SAP, you know, the best tools in the world. Um, How do you completely disrupt that and and do it the way Google does, you know, at 2x the efficiency? Setting those goals in hardcore monetary and people goal terms. So, you know, 2x the improvement, you know, uh, market share of our new smart products in uh, in the world, Um, you know, what percent of our business is coming from new business models as opposed to old business models. That's what I mean by strategy. So you set those goals at that level, the execution, then, and I'm really glad that you brought up traditional execution versus um, new, new methodology that, that, that I push is, you know, If you did the traditional execution, what you would say is, I need a project. I need a project leader. I need some goals, you know, so on and so forth. And I have to make my project successful. One thing I learned from X is they pride themselves on being a project and idea killing machine, which is they will get thousands of ideas. They will pick only roughly 30 projects to work on, you know, like the driverless cars. And any day of the week, they could kill any of those 30 projects, right? But what they are very clear about, just like, any portfolio manager is for wealth management is that you're going to have high risk projects high return and then others but you know the faster you kill bad ideas the sooner you know you end up with a better performing portfolio that execution methodology is very different from picking a technology picking milestones and saying come hell or high water i'm going to make this idea this baby of mine successful that's what you have to do
0: so the first thing, perhaps, for companies to do is actually to go and set up a, from what you've said, a new uh, operating model at the senior yes. level, because um, there's some questions. We, we, I think, a lot of people will, you know, resonate that the most people know about Google and how it goes and kills 99 percent of the projects, both in and outside of the ex-company. Um, fail fast, small team, startup mentality, agile versus waterfall. Um, what else did we have 70, 20, 10 in terms of profiles? Or if you're a VC, you know it's only 6% of your projects that are gonna be your 10X initiatives. So there's enough information out there to suggest that it should be quite easy for companies to go and do this type of stuff. 99 times out of 100, what happens is a small group gets set together. Maybe they fly to Silicon Valley, they come up with a few ideas, none of them work, and six months later, they're all out on their ear looking for work somewhere else what do the companies have to do as an operating model to go and set the support to allow the metrics and the systems to be put in place to go and help these people?
2: Um, uh, you said the key words there, um, which is they actually have to create an operating model, right? Um, The operating model essentially has to um, have all of the stages of change management. Um, the, The reason why, you have what you were just describing, which is innovation theater, right? You know, a small group that tries really, really hard, you know, even the successful pilots. And then when they get that back to the core organization, it gets immediately killed along with the careers of, you know, those, those innovation teams is because the operating model design, you know, is is too focused on creating the disruptive capabilities and not enough focused on essentially driving scaling change right 99% of disruptive innovation is organization change management um, so that is the difference right um, where is the operating model focusing on right and so um, what, what what I had to end up doing at Png and, and you know which is really a lot of the work that I do today is to basically you know identify the conditions that are required to scale change. Um, Because you're right, the conditions to create change exist. The world has great methodologies there. Scaling change, not so much. So for example, that gets into things such as reward systems, right? If you're a 180-year-old company, you are not going to change your reward systems to say, hey, take crazy risks, right? What you have to do is a very regimented stage gate system that basically says, First off, I am only going to do disruptive innovations on real business use cases that I have. I'm not going to start with what's possible and then end up with, can I do this at PNG? I'm going to start with, what do I need at PNG? And then I'm going to essentially use building blocks of capabilities that exist out there to design capabilities that I need. I'm going to get the leaders that identify what their needs are to commit that if I meet these success criteria, they are actually going to help me get to the next stage, yeah. And then iteratively, stage after stage, um, uh, I am going to essentially have parallel streams of work on essentially um, uh, training people, you know, on digital literacy. I'm going to have. Uh, parallel efforts on redesigning organization structures and creating new jobs for people whose jobs are gonna change. You know, all of that is, is is part of scaling change methodology.
0: Does this need to start? Well, actually before that, um, now let's continue with that one. How heavily do the executive teams need to get involved on this? Very. Because in many ways, as you said, the, those initial experiments are small and they don't cost often a huge amount of money. It's a whiteboard, some sticky notes, a couple of ideas. Um, And that's not normally the type of conversation that your ex are gonna get involved in.
2: Yes, yes, Um, uh, very, the the answer is very, very involved. Um, And and this is again, another reason to kind of think about all of this disruptive innovation in the context of um, uh, an industrial revolution and a business strategy, right? so they have to be completely hands-on on these experiments because their role is not to charter the work. Their role is to essentially put their legacy on the line and put skin in the game on essentially driving the change, right? Uh, and that is a very important difference, right? Right. Uh, and that's why, you know, a lot of the work that you do and, you know, ExoWorks, OpenXO, stuff like that's important because it is aimed at essentially, you know, leadership and board education and having them understand that in the midst of a an industrial revolution, you cannot delegate this type of transformation, right? It has got to be yours. Yeah.
0: All right. So that's great. Um Exco are now involved. They're each sponsoring um, a project. You mentioned kind of three streams. You've got new business uh, opportunities, Blue Ocean, if you wanna go and call it like that. You've got um, your toothbrush example, where you go from something to a smart toothbrush, and then you've got internal efficiency gains. So we want to go and work on all three of these spheres. Some of them are gonna be um, what McKinsey might call horizon two, some might be horizon three what do I do now for my team structure to get involved in this? Is this going to be the X company, which is, you know, or a skunk works, or can I rely on the current divisional head of the uh, team that makes toothbrushes to go make these transitions? What's your experience on that?
2: Um, So um, I'm going to sound consultant-like, which is not what I am. Um, But the answer is it depends in the sense that, um, the business model and the culture of every company is, is different. And so you have to play to, you know, change management strategies, you know, as I was saying, 90% of this is change management. And so, um, so it depends if the if the company's uh, culture is extremely siloed, um, you know, every division head basically has complete responsibilities, then as the exco, you have to change the reward systems of that division head and the division to make sure that they have, um, you know, some of those goals of what market share comes from new products or, you know, what percent productivity do you commit to? They've got to cascade to them. And then the actual setup of the teams have got to belong to them, right? Because at the end of the day, the division head is going to have to define what are the biggest pain points and the biggest ideas, and they have got to champion it, right? Um, if your company is much more of a go- global company, um, then you can basically say, okay, then I'm going to create the, the, you know, uh, skunkworks-like team that essentially then um, then brings in those ideas, right? So, again, you know, put that in the context of what's going to be most effective for your company to accept the change. The second point I would make is that um, what you don't do is, you know, take some really, really whip smart innovation people and put them in the team, right? Uh, because you are gonna fail. What you do is you essentially pick your most credible operating leaders. Um, and then as long as they have the mindset that they're open uh, to change, you essentially put them in charge of the you know, disruptive innovation work. Yeah, Because when you have a person who's known and incredibly credible, on product development of you know smart capabilities or even other capabilities, when they go out and they say, "Oh my God, I have to do this differently," they bring their organization along. Right? When you have a professional innovator that says, "Hey, the world's collapsing around us," the rest of the organization says, "Yes, you know that's you." Right. Um, so um, th- that's the second tip, which is you know construct your disruptive organization incredibly deliberately. Yeah?
0: I don't Um, remember that point you've just raised being in the book, but I find that absolutely fascinating. Take your old guard who have plenty of knowledge and experience and ask them to go and start driving some of the innovation strategies with the idea that they can be turned. They can adopt new models and they will bring uh, as opposed to going and bringing some 25, 30 year old straight out of Silicon Valley with all the best ideas about how to use AI who just won't get listened to.
2: That that is absolutely true, and and by the way, uh, with with the old guard, I mean, you know, you have to be extremely selective there. You know, you know some of them are never going to change, and and that's fine. You know, don't touch them. Um, but if you think they're going to change, then you bring them in. And by the way, on top of that, you know, you give them time. You give them six months, nine months. If if they're not able to deal with it, then you rotate them out. Yes, and so you you've got to be. You've got to be um, very, very results oriented. You know, you have to say, I have to see, you know, this group essentially start to uh, create products that drives, you know, sales or profits or you know, productivity, uh, you know, to these numbers. You know, again, like a venture capitalist. Otherwise, I'm going to do something different, right? Um, you mentioned
0: venture capital. So that's really good. Let's go through the next stage gates. So, um, uh, old guard person A. Um, goes off on a trip to Silicon Valley. He sets up some new metrics. Uh, He gets comfortable with running, uh, let's call it a 70, 30, 10, or whatever uh, model you want to go and use, i.e. most of them are gonna fail, 30% to kind of be okay, and maybe one or two, if you're lucky, are gonna be exponential. Gets the team together, they start running. They're two months in, they've got some great ideas that are being developed. You've actually got a system for that, which I think you've described as one, two, four, eight, sixteen. 16. Can you just talk through how that works?
2: Yeah, um, so, so here's, uh, just, just as context, here's the dilemma in companies, right? Uh, here's the difference between working in a company, a regular company and working in a startup. In a startup, you know, um, your constraint is money. When the money runs out, you know, your, your company's dead. And so you, you have a sense of urgency to get stuff done. In a large company, um, money, and I don't care, you know, how money constrained people in companies believe they are. Money is not the problem. Your problem is time. You are too slow, right? And so what we did was created this artificial constraint called, you know, again, an exponential series, which we, pulled out of a year. I mean, you know, there's, there's no, it, there's there's some judgment to it, but you know, it's it's not scientific. Uh, call this, you know, one, two, four, eight, sixteen. And 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 the, the 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 what we did was as part of our execution methodology, we said, you know, you have a maximum of one month to take a pain point or a business imperative, which one of the division heads says, I have to get this solved and come out with a big idea right, on how you're going to come out, how we're going to do a moonshot about it, right? Of course, in working with Silicon Valley and, you know, startups and stuff like that. So it's got to have some substance to it. Right? You have two months to essentially then create a working prototype, right, which essentially constrains you. You can't do upstream innovation in two months. So it's, it's going to be applied innovation by design, Yeah. Um, you have got four months to essentially do a successful pilot, a live pilot uh, within your organization. You have got eight months after that to get this completely deployed in the company. Um, If at any of those times, any of your success criteria, you know, including this doesn't pay out, the organization immune system is resisting it, or you run out of time, then the project's dead. Okay, so this creates pressure to stay focused on goals. And again, the, 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 your, what you're testing is not, is the technology ready? You're testing, am I going to get the returns? And maybe the, the the product is absolutely brilliant, your idea is brilliant, but the company's change management system and reward system and immune system says, I don't want it. You kill the idea, right? So you're extremely, extremely businesslike with, with all of these.
0: So is that? Would you say that's um, more of a VC sort of model? Because some might look at that and feel that we've got some uh, deadlines in there, some some critical path thinking. It feels like we're heading a bit waterfally. Now I know that that's always a bit like Land Rover versus Toyota. There's extreme <laughs> views on both sides. Yeah. But what's your view? I mean, in terms of how you apply agile for the innovative iterative thinking that you need in a structure that you've just explained is quite rigid?
2: Um, So I I think that the trick is that, um, you know, the the outcome structure is extremely rigid and disciplined, right? and, and I would say, I mean, my inspiration, our inspiration for this was essentially the venture capitalist community. Uh, and, and they come from the background of the financial community, which wealth management and investing and everybody else uses. So all we're doing is essentially using their thinking, right? Um, so that is extremely rigid in terms of their milestones. But you know that venture capitalists and, and the finance industry are also extremely agile in what they do on a day-to-day basis. So... You know, how how long should you hold on to a security and, and, and equity or, you know, or fund or whatever it is? Um, they could be doing day trading. I mean, it could be microseconds or it could be years, right? And it's completely driven by the outcomes that you're after. So that's my framework here as well, right? You know, I'm not preaching that you are going to do this project using waterfall methodology or or you're going to use agile methodology. What I'm saying is, I need to see the outcome. I need to see a working prototype. You know, if you choose to spend 90% of your time, you know, creating that particular prototype in a completely waterfally way, and then 10% and and you show me the results, I'm fine, right? Um, So I think we have to, to your point, you have to kind of get out of the orthodoxy of, you know, Toyota versus Land Rover. You just have to be goals oriented.
0: Mm. You talked about um, budget. And 70-2010, and I guess budget in terms of resources and capital. What sort of, I mean, how important is it that EXCO verbally and at a board level go and allocate funds very visibly for these type of initiatives, especially kind of the, uh, the fail fast nine and 10 are going to flop type piece? Or should they be keeping it quiet, running it silently, allocating some money? Uh, you know, quite quietly with their divisional heads who they trust, uh, with the hope that every now and then something springs up and they've got this, this wonderful uh, new product, new efficiency for the organization?
2: Um, I, I, I strongly believe that um, this has got to be open and transparent um, because it has got to be a business strategy, right? Um, and, and, and the second reason is, you know, as an exco, what you're trying to do, is you are trying to empower the, the you know, your, your 10x people um, with not just money and stuff like that, but also accountability, because you're trying to build their credibility, that they're not ivory tower people, you know, you, so you're trying to say, I am going to openly give you, you know, whatever it is, you know, $100. But, you know, I'm also openly going to share that, you know, you gave back to me you know, $1,000 this year and 2000 $2, next year, you know, so on and so forth, right? And that's important to build the credibility and for people to see that, you know, these, these aren't, you know, strange people that think and act differently, you know, that they are essentially part of our business and operating model, as you said, uh, to bring change in.
0: Okay, so um, we've got some budget allocated, the board's convinced, we've got our horizon one to three. Uh, I'm heading up a, an operational area and um, I've, I've agreed, I'm taking 10% out of my budget to go and allocate on hyper-efficiency models. I've started assembling the teams. We've gone through, we're two months in. The ideas are great. We've decided on, I don't know, four prototypes that we're gonna start working with. We think we can spin them up way quicker than eight months. We're six months in, I've got this magic system. I don't know what it's for. You mentioned uh, payments. Um, So uh, we're not gonna go and do invoicing. We're gonna go and use AI to go and completely revolutionize the way that we do procurement and invoicing. And at some point we look at it and go, this is never gonna work. There's inherent bias in the system and our customers, as we've realized, hate it. They prefer the personal touch and it's causing a disaster. We're killing it. How do I get promoted from that? because it's the right decision in the model that you've explained. And I don't hear of people often ending up in that we're going to kill it phase. They prefer yeah. to to kind of move it on and give it to someone else to go and fail with.
2: Yes, yes. Um, so what you're talking about then is the reward systems, right? So, you know, we come from, this is, this is the execution methodology part of uh, why digital transformations fail, um, which is we use traditional project management PMI project management Institute ways of doing these projects. Right. Uh, And, 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 and that's insufficient because what you need to be doing is you, you have to be using more the venture capitalist portfolio approach or the financial manager portfolio approach um, with those reward systems. So what people have got to be seeing is that, you know, this, this disruptive innovation organization uh, was given $100 and then they have turned out eight thousand dollars right? Uh, what they have to see is that, you know, they worked on 10 projects and they killed nine of them, but the 10th one gave them all the money, right? Uh, and, and this is basically what your financial advisor does as well. I mean, they have a portfolio and you reward them not for switching in and out of securities that were not performing, but for the outcomes, right? Um, and that it doesn't exist. And I'm really glad you're asking this question, Colin, because this is an important education for Exco members. Do you have that reward system instilled in that part of the organization that's doing disruptive? I mean, if when you have people that are doing day in day out accounting, you know, you cannot use that uh, process to say, okay, fine, it doesn't matter if you got nine invoices right, but you got the tenth one great, and and I'm going to promote you for it. So different parts of organizations have got to have different reward systems for this particular arm of disruptive innovation. You have to be extremely clear on what their reward systems are. And you have to visibly reward them for the churn of the portfolio uh, to, to help keep the, 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 the total picture financially healthy. It's a
0: question that came on here from uh, Tristan. Um which I think could be quite relevant for a lot of the people on the call. There's lots of advisors and, and consultants, but how, how do you actually go into a client um, with its own culture and its own model and try to convince them of a lot of what we're talking about, particularly around this transformation between, you know, you've got the kind of PMI model, which is all about delivery. It's linear, you can do it efficiently, yeah. but you don't go into that saying, we're not gonna ever deliver that project. Versus a portfolio approach, where you're going and say we are guaranteeing ninety percent of the portfolio is not going to survive because we're continually churning.
2: Yeah, um, I, um, uh, you know, in, in my mind, and, and and this is this is really something that we have to be very very clear about. Um, this approach only does work top down. So you know, if you're going in to an IT organization that's running projects and you're saying, well, wait a minute," you know. If you want to be the IT organization of the future, you know you have to use a portfolio management approach. Um, and 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 you're pitching this at the middle management level, you're probably going to get thrown out on your ear, and and that's it, right? So this you you really really have to do this. Unfortunately, only top down, because you know you're going to need all of the support, not just off you know, a quote unquote mandate, but changes in reward systems and and uncomfortable conversations and people getting, you know, uh, rotated out of assignments and and a whole bunch of really, really nasty things during execution. So even the first conversation really, really needs to be top down. Um, And you have to work methodically, right? So as I said, the first thing is you have to convince people that you know, you do need three parts to their business strategy, you know, day-to-day operations, the continuous improvement and disruption. Then you have to work them methodically to what are the goals that they want? What are the outcomes? What's the portfolio outcome? And then you can go in and talk about failing fast. See, the problem is, you know, when when Silicon Valley talks about fail fast and stuff like that, you know, 99% of the world that works in routine jobs looks at this and said, what are you talking about, right? I work in accounting. There is no failing fast. You either succeed or you fail, right? So you always have to put this in context. Otherwise you're gonna have a language issue.
0: Sean, are you gonna join us just to close out? Have I I got that right? Is my timing right? Sean, there you are. (laughs) You're on mute. While Sean's working out how to uh, turn off note, be I'm going to just post. I think the, you tried
3: uh, to unmute me and it was blocking mine. Sean, over here. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, look, thanks for your participation, which is, I understand, the uh, sadly, the last episode of uh, season two. Um, I'd like to thank you, Tony, for well, was a fantastic insight. I'm fascinated by disruptive technology. I think it took uh, telephone um, telephones 50 years to reach 50 million users and... Uh, Yeah, my son can do a TikTok video and reach one and a half million people within a matter of days. So uh, I find all of this absolutely fascinating and uh, a complete challenge sort of managing the team that I manage. Uh, Colin, thanks for your facilitation. I thought some great questions. So uh, absolutely uh, insightful uh, hour. Um, Thanks, Tony. Um, Can I just thank you, uh, my pleasure. can I just thank and mention uh, some of our clients who participated today. We had over 200 participants, which is great. Um, you know, people such as Apollo, Nedbank, Tiger Brands, Old Mutual, some of the biggest companies in uh, in South Africa. So uh, you really hit a, a great audience. Um, I'd also like to thank some of our speakers from the other parts of the series. Uh, previously, India, Gary Martin from New York. Uh, we had our own CEO, um, Stephen Van Coller, We had... Uh, uh, Gina uh, Bianchini from Los Angeles and uh, Andrew Baker from ABSA so we've had a sort of great lineup of speakers and on average we had uh, well over 200 participants uh, per week about a third of those being EOH clients so um, it's been great um, you know some of the feedback and I saw some great feedback in the uh, chat for you today Tony and uh, Previously, we've had comments such as thought-provoking, inspiring, refreshing, insightful, great advice and guidance, love the different way of approaching things, authentic speakers, great topics. And, uh, you know, I think today has just added to it. So it's been, um, it's been a truly, truly interesting day. Um, and anyway, if you missed some of these episodes or you want to go back and see uh, this session with Tony again or you want other people to watch it, then it'll be on the website, which is ioco.tech. So I'd just like to sort of close by thanking everybody, you know, it wouldn't have been possible without you all. Um, I think it's been fascinating and we look forward to seeing you in the new series in 2021. Thank you again, Tony. And uh, thanks to all of you who participated. Thanks for having me. Great, cheers, thank you. Cheers
0: everyone, thank you very much. If you're, uh, you can dial off now, if you wanna leave a quick comment before you go, that's fine, I'll leave the call open just for 30 seconds so you can share your feedback and uh, Hope to see you in some time next year.